When I was in college, I received a, a double major for my bachelor's, and one of my majors was in communication and culture. And in that degree, I learned of this topic called ethnography. Anybody heard of ethnography before? Say it with me, ethnography. Ethnography, ethnography is the systemic study of people and culture. It's designed to explore cultural phenomena where the researcher observes society from the point of view of the subject being studied. So in other words, what this means is that I learned how to watch and study people by trying to put myself in their shoes while putting my perceptions, my thoughts, my feelings to the side. So I, I'm, I'm in someone else's shoes and, and learning how they do life. And, and what you find out is that as mama used to tell you, things ain't always as they seem at first glance. Y'all ever heard that before? You see, what happens is in our lives, we tend to many times judge people and perceive their actions or words wrongly because we're listening or we're watching or viewing them through one lens, which is our own. And the simple fact is that no two humans are created exactly the same. So your lens may not be their lens. What they're doing may not be what you think they're doing. We're all different all the way down to our DNA structures. Everybody is different. And because we lack this inability at times to view society or people through ethnographic lenses, we judge folks and then we act on our judgments. So we can tend to dislike someone based off of what we see them do and actually have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. Or we prejudge someone because we see them do something that we don't understand. For example, y'all remember when uh, Bluetooth the headphones used to come out, the, the one where people used to wear on the, the joint on the side like this? Y'all remember those? Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Bluetooth headphones, y'all remember that? It, it, used to, it used to mess me up when I'd see somebody walking down the street in the mall or something like that, and they have it on this side, and I'm watching them across the street, and I can't see. All I can see is this side of their face. So automatically, as I see them walking, I automatically think they're crazy because I cannot see what's on the other side of their head. So what I perceive is that they're crazy, but in actuality, they're not crazy. They're just on the phone. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about because it's normal nowadays to be walking down the street talking on one of those Bluetooth headphones, but back in the day, it used to mess me up. But see, my point is that in all of this, what I'm saying is that we naturally act a certain way or react a certain way towards people or things because of the way we understand them. And we do this same thing when it comes to the Christian church and especially the Holy Spirit. We, we act a certain way towards Christianity or the Holy Spirit because of the way we understand them, the way we interpret them. Some think the Holy Spirit is mystical. He's not understandable. Some think he never existed. Some take him overboard and they act all crazy and say, it's the Holy Spirit in me. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you to put your ethnography lenses on with me and look at the early church. And I want to see how the Holy Spirit actually works. Amen? i got two points for you this morning. Number one, the Holy Spirit works in order and brings glory to God. Say that with me. The Holy Spirit works in order and brings glory to God. And number two, the Holy Spirit brings about unity in the church. The Holy Spirit brings about unity in the church. Those are my two points this morning. Last week, we opened our series in the book of Acts, 
looking at the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave and had dwelt amongst the apostles for 40 days, not one, not two, but 40 days, and he's teaching them things and spending time with them. These were Jesus' last words to those who he loved. This is kind of like his will to those that he, he loves before he ascends to heaven. And in these words, as we pointed out last week, he says to them, you will receive the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and he will give you power to go out and be my witnesses. See, Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples, I'm, gonna, I'm about to leave you. I'm, I'm going to heaven, but although I'm leaving you and I will not be here physically, I am not going to leave you alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He says, he will give you power to be my witnesses because Jesus knew that these brothers weren't going to be able to do it without him. They wouldn't be able to go out and do and be the witnesses that he called them to be. And we know this for sure because just, just 40 days ago, I mean, Jesus had walked with these dudes for three years. Just 40 days ago when Jesus is getting beat to a pulp and he's hanging on the cross, these dudes are nowhere to be found. They're, they're, they're hiding because they don't want to get called too. So Jesus is like, look. Y'all are my boys, and I want you to be my witnesses, but I know you can't do it, so I need you to hold up just a minute. Wait just a minute. The Holy Spirit is coming, and he's going to give you the power to be the witnesses that I've called you to be. And then Jesus, he ascends to heaven, and the disciples are caught still gazing into the sky as if this Jesus, they cannot believe that, that Jesus is gone right now. I, I mean, I can imagine these brothers being sad right now, disheartened, and also just flat out dumbfounded because Jesus just floated away on a cloud. I ain't seen nobody ever float away on a cloud except in a cartoon. These brothers are probably just flat out dumbfounded like, oh my God, he just, he, he, he's actually on a cloud. But hear me, I mean, I mean really, it's crazy to think about, but I really think there's something deeper, much deeper going on in this passage. They're sitting there, and they're looking, and they're staring in heaven. They're probably like, man, our leader is gone. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? He's left us. And then two men in white robes, they walk up, and they say, what are y'all staring at? This Jesus that left you is going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. They're basically saying, he's coming back. They are encouraging them that Jesus is coming back, but also say, stop looking for him to do something and listen to his words and go out and do something about it. They're saying, be encouraged. Just listen to him, do what he said, and be the church. You see, Jesus' words to the disciples before he leaves, and these men in the two white robes, their words are essentially the same thing. Just be encouraged. I'm coming back, but until then, I need you to be the church. Be the church. Now, in our text this morning, it says that when the day of Pentecost arrived in verse 1. Now, hear me. This is talking about when the Holy Spirit is coming, but it's also talking about Pentecost being a feast. It was the feast uh, as, a, as the day of harvest feast or, or the day of first fruits. And Jews would come from all over the place to this place to, to celebrate the completion or, the, or to commemorate the completion of the grain harvest. So they're coming in, they're having a big old celebration, and the text says they all were together. Now, it's not talking about all the people. All right here is talking about, in verse 15 of chapter 1, the 120 people that Jesus appeared to that followed him. So they're all together in the upper room. They're praying, they're hanging out in this upper room, kind of like our church. They're in the upper room together. 
and it says that a sound came like a rushing wind. Not a wind, a sound like a rushing wind. Now, I can imagine this being like how people explain a tornado coming through, the sound that you hear, the train that comes through. It sounds like a train is coming through. It sounds like a tornado. It's freaking people out, and it says it filled the entire house. Now, family, I don't want you to just read over this. A lot of times we read over chapter 2 in Acts, and we don't pay attention to this because, family, here's the thing. This wouldn't have been a fun place to be. This isn't all that exciting right now. I mean, sometimes we skip over this and we think, man, that would have been amazing to, to just be there and be filled with the Holy Spirit and all of this happened. I wish I was there and hear me, y'all. It, it wasn't as pleasant as you think it is. I mean, here is the truth, because I don't want you to miss this, because somewhere down the line, people have begun to think that the Holy Spirit working in your life is supposed to always be pleasant. It's supposed to be awesome. It's supposed to feel good at all times, and it's always for your good. Let me help you out a bit. You see this text, when the Spirit moves in our lives today, and He wants to work, He starts moving things around in your life. It's just like the text. It's like the sound of a tornado coming through, rushing wind. It's disturbing things. And y'all, it ain't pleasant. Does not feel good. You know why? Because when the Spirit starts intervening and He comes into your life, He notices that there's a whole lot of things in your life that are out of order. So what He has to start doing is working and moving things around. And y'all, that doesn't feel good because you had it one way. He's like, no, I got to get you this way so I can start doing things in your life that I want to do. He starts moving things around, and that's not pleasant. Doesn't feel good. I mean, think about it. You, you ever prayed to God for Him to do something? You just expected Him to do something, and then He doesn't do it, or it just seems to get harder in your life. Like, God, I want this job. I need this job. I need this promotion. And you don't end up getting it. And then things start getting worse at your other job. Or I want this man or this woman. And you've been praying for this for years. You're trying to be faithful in things. And you're like, man, God, why am I still single year after year? Or financial trouble. You're like, God, I need to hit the lotto. I got to get out of this. But then the finances that you still have are starting to doing away a little bit more. You know why all this happens? Because sometimes, family, hear me. In order for the Holy Spirit to work in your life, he's got to shake you up a bit. He's got to stir things up a bit. He's got to start moving things around. And sometimes it gets worse before it gets better, which isn't always pleasant, but it's always for your good. It's what I talked about a few weeks ago, if y'all remember in John chapter 15, where I talked about the Lord has to prune you. He has to cut some bad fruit off in your life. And that doesn't feel good because you've been attached to that bad fruit. And he has to cut it off and he has to prune it so you to bear good fruit or so he can get you to a fruitful place. It's not always pleasant. My point is, family, that in this text, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, this isn't a fun place to be. It's probably more scary and alarming because these people probably at this point, they have no idea what is happening to them. 
It's loud, obnoxious. Nobody knows where this noise is coming from. They're in this upper room. And then it says the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, I'm not sure if this is literal fire, but we know fire from the Old Testament talks about it being purification or the presence of God coming on people. So what we can gain from this text is that this is God coming down, purifying the people and resting on them and in them hits the Holy Spirit. Now, I need y'all to picture this with me. Don't read over this too quickly. This is not some hunky-dory fun time with the Holy Spirit. This is kind of scary. I mean, could you picture this? Loud noises, now fire, fireballs on people's tongues, and then, and then, then the text says that they're filled with the Spirit and begin to speak in divided languages. There are loud noises like a tornado or sirens going off and fireballs resting on these people and how they're speaking in new languages, new tongues that they've never done before. And here's what I say never done before because you have to understand when they say these are all Galileans speaking, Galileans only spoke one language. They only knew one language. They're diverse people, but they don't know anything but one language. But then the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start speaking languages that they do not know. Y'all, this is like a scary movie. Can you imagine this? But see, here's the thing. Don't miss it. God had to do this, and he had to bring the Holy Spirit into our midst in such a way like this so that no one else could take credit, and it only points back to God. It's God working. Now, let me pause right here because... Although the broader point that I want to really get at is the spirit falls on the people and the church is is about to start and they're going to go be the church. I I know some of y'all are stuck on the whole tongues thing. You know, like, Pastor D, what you going to talk about with that? What what, what does that mean? So before I get to that, let me me back up to this and say, I'm not about to give you a whole rundown or breakdown of spiritual gifts. I'm not going to do that in a thorough analysis of spiritual gifts right now. I'm not going to do that. But what I will say is that a church, we do believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I also do know this, along with that, and I believe that God is a God of order. Okay? Which means that the Holy Spirit also works in order. And he will never contradict God, the Father, Jesus the Son, or the Word of God, the Bible. Need y'all to follow me with this. And we know this from John chapter 16. Talks about the work of the Holy Spirit coming in. He's going to follow the word of God. He's going to never speak on his own accord. It's only accord with the Father or the Son. But see, the problem is not that we don't believe the word of God. It's that sometimes we don't believe God is a God of order. Because all these things in our lives are out of order. We believe he's mystical and he just does whatever he wants to do. He's against me. He does all these things, and, and which is not true. God has always been a God of order. He always works in order in order to glorify himself. It's all about his glory. Now, follow me with this because I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. The Bible tells me that God created all things. And you can read about the creation in Genesis chapter 1. But what you really don't see or we miss a lot of times is the order how God created things. He never works out of order. He's a God of order. We don't pay attention to it, though. But it's all right there. It's right there in the beginning of the Bible. Let me, let me, t- let me tell you about it. He, he, he spent a lot of time and, and, and worked many details in the making of 
this world, this creation. Let me talk about it. He placed the moon and the sun and the stars in the sky. He knows every star by name. The sun always rises in the east and sets in the west. It ain't never the other way around. It's always in order. Family, the sun is the perfect distance away from the earth. Any closer to us and we would all burn up. Any farther away from us, we would all freeze. But y'all didn't get that, yo. Y'all missed the order there. So let me talk about it a little bit more. Y'all remember Woody the Woodpecker? Y'all remember Woody the Woodpecker? (laughs) <laughs> y'all remember Woody the Woodpecker? Y'all don't even know. Some of y'all are too young to know Woody the Woodpecker, right? Woody the Woodpecker. But y'all, y'all have probably all seen a red-headed woodpecker, right? Red-headed woodpecker. And see, this is the reason. I'm going to talk about this red-headed woodpecker because sometimes we can't fathom or begin to imagine the sun, the moon, and the stars and how God could create galaxies. But here's the thing. God works all the way down to the intricate details of a red-headed woodpecker. Now, family, this is probably one of the most annoying birds ever if you've ever lived by one. But if you ever studied it, you would know that it's one of the most magnificent creations God has ever made. See, the woodpecker's beak, it grows continuously because it's used like a chisel. And it's said to be able to move up to 12 miles per hour and 20 pecks per second, and it can stop instantly. It says that the stop, when it stops, is a thousand times greater than the gravitational force and about a hundred times higher than the acceleration of a space shuttle taking off in a launch. And on top of that, this is one that blew my mind, is that the woodpecker's brain is never disturbed because of the large cranial surface that surrounds his brain that distributes the shock evenly throughout his head. I mean, it makes no sense. There's this little bird banging his head over and over and over and over and over, all over the place, and his brain is never disturbed. It makes no sense. This bird, two to three ounces in weight, was put together very orderly, very meticulously, in order to bring honor and magnify glorious God. Don't miss the order and how God makes things. Y'all, what I'm trying to get at is that God is a God of order, which means that the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, same in essence and deity, but different person, works in order too. Therefore, when you look at the gifts of the Spirit, they're not meant to be mystical or out of order because they come from an orderly maker. And this is very important because some of us walking around talking about, I got this gift, I got this gift, the gift of tongues, and we're using it all out of order and saying it's the Holy Spirit, and it's not. It's not. Family, the gifts of the Spirit, hear me, they're given for three reasons. Number one, to edify God, lift him up. Number two, to edify the person. But number three is to edify the church, your neighbor, the body. Sound like any other commandments, you know? Love God with all your soul, mind, strength, and your heart. And to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing. He gives us this so we can be his witnesses. Family, the gifts of the Spirit, that's why they're given to us. They're not just for you, for the whole body. And when they work together, family, the the body is is able to do amazing things. I'm talking about the church. Now, let me bring some clarity to the gift of tongues. I know y'all still stuck there. So let me bring some clarity to this because it's right here in the text, so we need to talk about it. The gift of tongues in the Bible is not someone just blabbering about sounding pretty with it, whether they're singing or just talking. That's not what the gift of tongues are, okay? Tongues in the Bible, in its original language, Greek is pronounced glossa. Everybody say glossa. It's another word for languages. 
It's where you get the word tongue. And remember, God works in order. So what happens here is that these folks have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and they start speaking or uttering different languages. Here's the Holy Spirit. They don't know these languages, though. They're uttering these languages that they don't know. Some of y'all missed it when I was reading it, so let me read it again for you. Look back at the text. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, meaning that they knew a lot of different things, all, all these languages, these devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together. They hear the sound that's happening to the 120, and they run to them, and they're bewildered because each one is hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Remember, one language. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear, I love it. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Don't miss what's happening here. And, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Y'all, don't miss it. Tongues are a gift from the Holy Spirit. And they're not just different utterances where people are blabbering around and making it sound good. No, no, don't miss what's happening here. But they're languages that that person that's speaking of may not understand, but someone does. And guess what? Here in the text it says, they're telling of the mighty works of God. They're telling of the mighty works of God. And see, here's the thing. Because Paul talks about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 specifically. Because all Christians, I mean, after this, I can only imagine after this, everybody walking around saying, I want to speak in tongues. So Paul's like, let me, I need to write y'all a letter. So he writes them a letter to 1 Corinthians, and, and he talks about it in chapter 14. He's like, look, look, let me, let me help y'all. Let me bring some correction to this because everybody's trying to speak in tongues. And I get it. When you see what happens in Acts chapter 2, everybody, I, I get it. If people are getting saved, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's a gift to be desired. And some of y'all, I mean, let's be real. Some of y'all still out here praying for the gift of tongues today, right? Year after year, I want to get this. I want to get this. But hear me, y'all. It probably just ain't your gift. Hopefully that frees you. It just might not be. A, I mean, I did it. I prayed for it. Did it once. I never did it again. It ain't my gift. But hear me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if you don't believe me, read it. He says, it's cool to desire the gift of tongues. It's all good. Desire that. But seek to interpret it more. Seek to interpret it more so that it's edifying to the body. Because if there's no interpretation and you do this private prayer language out in public, it's confusing the people and they're probably going to think you're crazy. That's right there in the Bible. And then he says, breaking it down a little further, now talking about orderly worship. There's that word orderly. Talking about orderly worship in the church, like a setting like this. He says in verses 27 to 28, if anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two at most three that do this, and each one at a time, in turn, and then let someone interpret it. But if there is no one to interpret it, let them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. See, again, as I said, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit here at our church, but we also believe in order. Now, hear me, because I know this is touchy for some of y'all. And you might think I'm crazy when I, when, I, when I say what I'm about to say, but it's right here in the text. 
But if someone stood up in our church and starts speaking in tongues and nobody knows exactly what they're saying, I'm going to say, I'm going to probably walk up here and say, hey, does anybody, can anybody interpret that? Can anyone interpret that? And, 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 and I'm not being crazy or some kind of stickler, but it's right here in the text. And if no one can interpret it, then it's out of order. And they need to be quiet and keep it between them and God. But if somebody is here to interpret it, y'all, it's in order. And guess what happens right here in the text? When things are in order, according to the work of the Holy Spirit, people get saved. People get saved. Y'all don't believe me, though, do you? Look at the text. Look back at it. Spirit falls on the people. They start speaking languages they do not know. And the people around them are from all over the world, and they don't know Jesus, okay? These are devout men. They don't know Jesus, devout Jews, but they don't know Jesus. And these people start speaking in these languages they don't know, but the people come, and they're able to hear it, and they interpret the languages. And they, they say they're telling of the mighty works of God in our own language. And then my man Peter stands up, and he's like, y'all, don't get it twisted. They're not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit. He gives one of the most powerful sermons in all of human history. And at the end of it, look what happens in verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It went from 120 to 3,000. People got saved. Don't miss this. Hear me. God is a God of order. He's a God of order. And so are the gifts given through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Friends, when the Holy Spirit works, it's not just for your own good, but more importantly, it's for the whole body of Christ. It's for us to be witnesses, as he called us in chapter 1. It's to be witnesses of a holy God. Somebody needs to hear this. The Holy Spirit is not just your personal power source. He is there for you to rely on, but he's always working in order to bring glory to God. Amen? Now watch this, because there's one more thing in the text, and we can't miss it. Can't miss it. I think it's beautiful, and it speaks directly to our church. Hear me. The day of Pentecost sparks many debates, theologically and denominational debates throughout history. It's divided people for centuries. And when in actuality, family, hear me, this is one of the greatest acts of unity in the body known to man, right here in Acts chapter 2. Seriously, I mean, family, you, you can look at the denominations and their beliefs are broken a lot of times just because of this. This one act, they leave different places and go to different denominations and they believe certain things based off of what happens here at Pentecost and hear me, or, or, the, or the spirit and how it works, the gift of tongues and all of that. And if you really pay attention, the spirit doesn't come to bring division, but instead true unity. Don't miss it. Again, people come from all over the place for Pentecost, all different types of people for this feast. And the Spirit falls. Watch this. Look at the text. When the Holy Spirit comes on the people, it gives them the know-how to speak languages they don't know. Again, this is not them blabbering about trying to just sound real good. No, this is real. The Spirit is working. These are languages they do not know. People see them speaking, and they know the languages, and they're impacted. Don't miss this. God gives them the Spirit, and they receive power. But it's not just for them, it's for them to be the witnesses that he's called them to be. He gives them the gift of tongues, these languages where they couldn't speak, 
and they end up with all these people hearing it, they get saved. Now, I'm not sure if y'all are hearing what I'm saying. All these people in one place getting saved. Look, look, don't miss this. The first church here in Acts chapter 2 was a multi-ethnic, multicultural, disciple-making church just like Renewal. Right here, the beginning of the church. Although they're different, the Holy Spirit brings them together. People that wouldn't normally be together brings them together. Family, do not miss the magnitude of what's happening here in this text. It's almost as if God is reversing the curse in Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel. My Bible thumpers in here, y'all remember that? Tower of Babel. People, people they, they're all one nation and they're, they're diverse, but they're, they only can speak one language. So they got everything in common. They're like, cool, let's band together. Let's build a tower and we can get to the heavens. We can be like God. They're prideful. God comes down in the form of man. He's like, oh, no, <laughs> this is not happening. No, no, this isn't happening. He scatters them about, makes their languages different so where they cannot, they don't know what each other are saying. So they can't do this anymore. They, they can't be like God. Now, now watch this, because in Acts chapter 2, it's almost as if he's now reversing that curse. And although these people speak different languages, these folks don't know these languages, and he allows these people, these 120, to know these languages that these other ones speak, and now they're saying stuff that, that brings honor and glory to God, speaking of the goodness of God, the mighty works of God. The, see, see, the Holy Spirit, y'all don't, don't miss this, is dwelling in these people, bringing glory to God, and brings unity to the body of Christ. Now, hear me. God did not give us the Holy Spirit as believers to bring about division in the body, but instead unity, which means that I can be a black man and my brother can be white or Hispanic, speak a different language than me, have a different culture, but we both are indwelled. The Holy Spirit is indwelling both of us. So although we're seemingly different, we're now united. Don't miss this. And, and hear me, without different cultures and different people in the body of Christ, y'all, the body would not be complete. Wouldn't be complete. Friends, friends what, what I'm really trying to get at is that unity is God's design. It's God's design. Follow me with this. But hear me, unity does not imply sameness or uniformity. Don't miss this. But instead, true unity, it speaks of a divine creator who is creative and can make people different racially, culturally, all the way down the line, but then bring them together in him by working through the Holy Spirit. But see, this whole unity bit is very problematic. It's problematic today, especially in today's society in America. Because people are now divorcing Christianity because it's the so-called white man's religion or white evangelicalism. And see, what's happened is that throughout history, we've mixed unity. We've gotten it mixed up and made unity uniformity. Uniformity of cultures and, and, and family, I get, I get, I understand why people would say I'm leaving that. I'm not trying to be about that. I get it, especially as a black man, I get it. I understand the struggle of being a minority in America where my ancestors have gone through hundreds of years of slavery under a white man's whip while preaching this same Bible here. 
Can we be real this morning? Let me be real for just two minutes. I get it. And now we're preaching the same Bible saying outside of slavery, outside of civil rights, that, that, that black people and everybody else can be saved now by this same Bible. We, we all can be saved. And the struggle for minorities is that, yeah, yeah, I, I can believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He's given me everything, but yet don't sweep everything under the rug that's happened throughout these, these centuries. Don't sweep it all under the rug. I need you to see all of me, all of my blackness, everything there. And see, what's happened is that as a result, now that we're all Christians, majority culture or white people would say, I, I, I don't want to acknowledge the implications of history. I wasn't a part of that. And we don't acknowledge the racial struggles that still exist today because of what's happened in the past. I get why somebody would say, I don't want to be a part of this. Me, hear me, because I, I totally understand it. Why somebody who's disenfranchised, an immigrant, a woman of any color, because women are still not equal today, I, I get it. Or a minority would say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I get it. This is tough. I get it. I, I get why they would say this, because it's been a force that white men in particular have used against others to keep them in their place. I know this is tough, but I, I get it. Now, I know, family, when we look at this, especially for my white brothers, this is tough. But here, we need to be real about what's happened in our country, what's happened in our history. Because a large part of, of racial disparity in our country, the problem is that we're ignorant of our history. And ignorant does not mean stupid. It just means that we choose to ignore what's happened in our history. We ignore it, and we choose to ignore systemic injustice. We ignore history. We ignore how politics affect others. All down the line, we just ignore it. And we ignore these certain things, and we ignore truths unconsciously if it doesn't line up with our comfort zone or our social sphere. And, and you know what? In actuality, here's the truth. What we're really choosing to ignore, you know what we're really choosing to ignore? We're really choosing to ignore a creative God who can make people all different shapes and sizes, different colors, different cultures, different races, and then bring people together through the work of the Holy Spirit. We're ignoring the beauty of God's tapestry of creation. We're trying to uniform it all. See, because here it is, as a black man, I understand, understanding now the history of America but yet understanding the sin that indwells all people, humanity. In my case, understanding that, that the root of racism and hatred is a sin. I can look at my white brother or my sister and not hate them, but look at them with compassion, knowing that I once too was in darkness. I once too was in a place where God chose to reach down and kick me out of the muck and the mire and save me by his grace. That was me. And see, to clarify that, what, what, what I can now do, knowing the history that, that, that parts or divides myself and my white brothers and sisters' family, now knowing that history between our races, now I, I, I don't necessarily hate them, but I have compassion. So no matter how much I am hurt by what happens to me, I still want them to be saved. 
It's compassion. And hear me, that's regardless of systemic injustice or majority cultural ignorance. That's regardless of racism or sin, just period. Because if God can save me with all of my mess and the things that have gone in my life, he can save someone else too. Don't miss it. Family, hear me. The Holy Spirit brings about unity, not division. Because up to me, here's the truth. Knowing the history that's happened between white and black people, up to me, no Holy Spirit, I probably wouldn't talk to white people. That's just being honest. But because the Holy Spirit has worked in my life, some of my best friends to this day are white. That's truth. That's the Spirit working. See, this is why I love the multi-ethnic multi-generational, multicultural church, because when people from all different walks can come together, check in their presuppositions at the door, and can sit at a table in today's society and come from two different sides of the spectrum on politics, on culture, on society, on race, and seek to understand one another, y'all, that's the Holy Spirit. When you know where we've been and we can sit at a table and still work through this, that's the Holy Spirit. Because at the core of who they are, who we are, the Spirit is driving everything. So, so the, for the believer, they don't let their other beliefs or other things get in the way that keeps them divided. No, no, because all of that pales in comparison of knowing God. And family, if that's true, then as we see in this text, inevitably, Unity will be the result. God doesn't send the Holy Spirit to believers to divide us. He sends him to bring glory to himself through our witness, through us being the church, being unified as one. Not sameness, not uniformity, but unity in the body. Friends, hear me as we end the day. For the believer, there should be nothing in your life that goes toe-to-toe with God. It means there's nothing in your life that is competing there. There's no competition. And if that's true, family, hear me, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, there's nothing that can divide true believers because we all possess the same spirit. So no matter how you feel, no matter your race, no matter your politics, no matter your gender, all down the line, we should be able to work through everything to bring about unity in the body. But because it, it ain't about us, it's about God. And then see what happens is as you look at this text, the result is the same thing that happens with the early church. At the end of this chapter, in verse 47, look at it with me. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You see what unity does? When people see something that's not supposed to happen, people come together, working together to glorify God, he adds to their number daily. Let us be the church that seeks to glorify God in all we do and be united and unified through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let us always be a spirit, a Holy Spirit-empowered church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. You're an awesome God. We thank you for the work of your spirit, God, in our lives. We thank you for being good. 
We thank you that even when we don't deserve it, you give us good gifts. When we're divided as a people, we struggle with the same things we've been struggling with since the beginning of time. You still choose to say, these are my children, and you choose to say, here's my spirit, here's me. You still choose to chase after us. You still choose to love us. And you still have this lasting desire that we'll be one just like you in the Trinity. God, I pray that we would be that as a church, that we'd be a spirit-empowered church that's not driven by our own passions, our own things. That we'd be driven by one thing, and that's to give glory to you, God. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts. And God, as we come to this table this morning, let us take our time and just think of your goodness. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to give our lives to you, Lord. Wherever we are this morning, let us remember your sacrifice. God, you're good. Give you all the glory and honor. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen.